Friendship, the podcast where friends assign pop culture homework to each other. I'm Kate. And I'm Alex. The way this works is every episode, one of us assigns a favorite book, movie, or TV show to the other. Then we discuss the assignment in podcast form. It's really pretty simple. Just so you know, any and all plot points are up for discussion. So if you don't want spoilers for the episode's assignment, maybe don't listen. Today, I assigned Alex John Sturgis' 1963 film, The Great Escape. Kate has a trend going. It's John Sturgis films that star Steve McQueen and James Coburn. To be fair... Charles Bronson. The Magnificent Seven came out, I think, in 1960, right? We talked about it last time. Yes, but I don't remember. Early 1960s. Basically, that movie predated... Oh, you know what? I can look it up because I brought my laptop today. Look at you. This is, so this is why I wanted to bring it, because I tried to prepare in advance. I was right. 1960. Good job, go. me. So, John Sturgis directly credits Magnificent Seven for his ability to get this movie made. He had shopped it around for a really long time before actually getting funding to make it, and he credits the popularity and success of the Magnificent Seven. For his ability to make The Greatest Game. If John Sturgis was making movies now, he just would have been offered, like, a superhero movie in somebody's cinematic universe. (laughs) (laughs) After making The Magnificence. (laughs) I've been like, great, you're directing Thor 5 now. (laughs) Yep, but with cowboys in it. No, not even with cowboys. She's like, you're directing Thor 5 now. Like, knock yourself out. <laughs> Some sweet IP. Sweet, sweet IP. Oh, man. Well, to be fair, this movie is based on a book. So there was pre-established intellectual property. And that book was based on a true story. It's true. So, indirectly, this film is based on a true story. It's kind of indirect, though. A lot of the characters in this movie are amalgamations and bizarre combinations of several people from the books in real life. Or they're just Steve McQueen. Or they're just Steve McQueen. (laughs) Steve McQueen is just like, no, I'm just Steve McQueen in this movie. That's how this works. Yeah. And it's funny because I... So I've been reading up on the Turner Classic movie page about this movie for funsies. Partially because I've seen the documentary from the DVD before, which actually turns out to be where a lot of this information does come from, but it was pretty well documented that Steve McQueen just, like, pieced out for the amount of time is debated by people, but basically pieced out when he decided that his role in this movie wasn't large enough, which if you remember from our Magnificent Seven podcast, he did the exact same thing for that movie, too. I feel like the, the conclusion that we're coming to on this podcast is that Steve McQueen's kind of a dick. But amazing. But, like, ridiculously hot. But but also just, like, a jerk. So kind of a dick. Just kind of a, a dick. He also was like, I'm gonna ride a motorcycle because I like them. And I'm gonna get my friend to do a stunt for me because I like him. To be fair, Steve McQueen on the motorcycle is, like, quite possibly the best part of the movie, so... It is. We'll come back to that, but he made the correct call in (laughs) doing that. So... He knew what the people wanted. He did. He did. He was not wrong. So, what were your, like, first impressions or overarching thoughts and feelings about The Great Escape? I had a lot of very complicated thoughts and feelings about this movie, and many of them stem from my day job when I am not a podcaster. So, a little background. When I'm not podcasting, I work in an organization that promotes education and research about the Holocaust at colleges and universities. So, I have lost the ability to watch films about World War II, like, outside of that context. Like, not even to watch films about the Holocaust outside of that context, but any film that deals with the Second World War, like, that's basically just always in the back of my brain when I watch these movies. So, I basically spent the first two hours and 40 minutes of this movie waiting for the Nazis to just start, like, indiscriminately slaughtering people. And then eventually they did, like, you know, ten minutes from the end of the film. (laughs) But I essentially was just sitting there and waiting for that shoe to drop and being confused by, like, the very jaunty music and the 
happy-go-lucky prisoners and also how nice the POW camp was. So part of the other context that I had in my brain while I was watching this is the main thing that I know about German treatment of prisoners of war in World War II pertains to Soviet prisoners of war who were treated much, 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 much worse than American and British prisoners of war to the point where they were starved, they were used for forced labor, they were just massacred in groups and somewhere around three and a half million Soviet prisoners of war died under German custody in the Second World War. And that was that was really my context for it again, just because of my job and because of hearing about these things. So I spent a lot of this film being very confused about how well treated these prisoners were. Also, just on a on a purely logistical level, being confused as to why, if you are running a POW camp for a group of people who are in this POW camp because they are known for escaping from other POW camps, why are you giving them so much unsupervised time to meet with each other in large groups? Or, like, tools. Yeah. Like, gardening tools. Like, really? <laughs> Like, they had to see this coming, right? <laughs> but the British are so keen on gardening, as we learned in the film. But it's just like, there were so many scenes where there's, like, large groups of them sitting in rooms while Richard Attenborough, like, talks them through the details of the escape. And it's like, guys, put a fucking guard in there. <laughs> like, there should be somebody monitoring these communications. What is happening? <laughs> I think we're supposed to believe that part of the specialization, or one of the specializations you could have in the X organization was being in charge of distractions and monitoring. So I think we're supposed to believe that they were so good at their jobs that they had the kind of time to have, like, a town hall meeting. I, I guess. I also think that... Along the lines that we saw in The Magnificent Seven, we didn't talk about it as much because it didn't matter as much, I think, for The Magnificent Seven, but the priority for this film was definitely the entertainment value of the story. Wasn't so much the historical accuracy. Exactly. So I have a feeling that John Sturgis was like, yeah, but it's cooler if there's a town hall meeting. I mean, that's true. It's, yeah, it makes sense. It's logical in entertainment terms, but there was a point where I was struggling with suspension of disbelief. Right. Well, well like, there are World War II movies that have that, like, Inglorious Bastards comes to mind. That's true, but they were not in prison when they were having those meetings. They were, like, on their own in a group. And Inglorious Bastards is one of my favorite World War II movies, and... I realize it's not historically accurate. And part of the reason that I love it so much is just that Tarantino is like, historical accuracy can go fuck itself. <laughs> so I think John Stewart just is a similar attitude. Well, and speaking of Inglorious Bastards, um, talking a little bit, I guess, about the structure of the movie is obviously the whole movie is kind of building up to the actual titular great escape from the POW camp. And... While the escape itself is very entertaining and very sort of tense and thrilling, the parts that I actually found the most compelling were not the actual escape, not Steve McQueen's motorcycle chase, even though it was fun and awesome, but the parts that I found to be really tense and interesting were like the scenes of people like on the train getting their documents checked, or like the scene where Roger and Mac are trying to get on the bus and pretending to be French to to the German guards who are checking their papers. And those sorts of things, which actually reminded me very strongly of a couple different scenes in Inglorious Bastards, and specifically the scene where Mac and Roger get caught because the guard speaks to Mac in English and he answers back in English, was obviously, I think like an influence on the scene in Inglorious Bastards in the tavern where the group of spies gets caught because Michael Fassbender uses the wrong three fingers to order three drinks. Right. And like those kinds of little details that I really like and 
Tarantino ratchets up the tension for a lot longer because that scene plays out for like a ridiculously long time. It does. I've seen that movie before. That, that is a really stressful film to watch. There's a couple different lengthy scenes that are just like unbelievably stressful. But I, that was interesting as kind of an influence on that and so that was a lot of my reference frame for some of those scenes and like they those were really well done i really like them where you have you know you're just sitting there and you have these people who just escaped like sitting on the train and you know they've made it out of this camp and they've crawled through the tunnel and they have their like improbably good looking civilian clothes that they're freaking magical tailor that guy's a wizard <laughs> like whipped up out of army uniforms and blankets and shit but it all comes down to right like are people going to believe them that they're really who they say they are and that their papers are legit? And I thought that that, that whole section to me was like probably the best part of the movie. Well, and I think the reason you're so invested though, is because you've seen in meticulous detail, how much work has gone into the escape and That's how much true. planning. Yeah. Like Roger knows that Mac is going to fuck that up because they had that scene earlier where they're practicing, yeah. and just to mess with him, he does speak to him in English, and he always makes that mistake. So you you kind of get that call, those callbacks. Yeah, and similarly, there's the earlier scene when Roger is saying that Donald can't... Donald Pleasance, whose character is also... No, Colin is his name. Yeah. But Donald Pleasance's character, Colin, can't go with him because his eyesight is too bad, and James Garner's character whose name I am forgetting, but James Garner. Double check. It's fine. James Garner <laughs> says, you know, actually, the, the biggest liability here is you because the Gestapo know who you are and they're looking for you. And, of course, what do you know? They get off the train and the Gestapo officer who delivered him to the camp is standing there and sees him and fucks everything up and baby Ducky gets shot trying to save him. <laughs> baby Ducky being a reference to, oh, what's his name? David McCallum. David McCallum, who, if you watch NCIS, which is the character Statistically, Ducky. you probably do, I think, given how many people watch, watch that show. So this was his, I think, one of his first forays into filmmaking. He's such a baby. Yeah. He's so young. He's definitely very young in this movie. So that would not surprise me. Yeah. No, I think one of the things that I actually noted was sort of the callback structure, which I thought was really interesting and really well done and the first sort of two hours of the movie do a great job of laying off that groundwork for stuff that goes down in the final 45 minutes or so right and one of the things that i noted is that there's sort of this running thread through the movie right of these prisoners doing things where they're gonna escape or where they're misbehaving or something and have guns pointed at them and hold up their hands and say don't shoot which is like happens a number of times throughout the movie and so it sort of establishes for you this baseline of like you know they're they're actually they don't want to kill these people like they're trying to keep them alive they're prisoners of war there's geneva conventions in play these people also are potentially valuable you know as hostages for trade or whatever which Probably, if you're not me and you weren't spending the entire movie waiting for the other shoe to drop, makes it more shocking when they just slaughter everybody on the way back to the camp. Again, if you're not me, because I saw that coming from a mile away. Yeah, I think part of what's interesting about the making of the movie that I haven't thought about in a while is that they actually filmed the movie in Germany, which means that most of the crew actually probably were Germans in an army situation. Um, at least some That's of the awkward. people were like actually POW, like to the two actors who play the Germans were actually prisoners of war. One was an American prisoner of war and the other like in Arizona and the other yeah. one was in Russia and apparently had to walk back. That's a long way. Yeah. Of course, if you're Steve McQueen, you could have made that in, like, ten minutes. Well... But given that he gets from... Venezuela, Argentina. <laughs> Lower Silesia, which is in Poland, FYI. They're not in Germany, they're in Poland. And he makes it from there to the Swiss border on a motorcycle. In the amount of time that it takes James Garner to get there in a fucking plane. <laughs> the previous shouting of countries is a reference to the Eddie Izzard joke section where he talks about the Great Escape and makes the same point by saying that he goes 
Poland. He goes, he, Poland, Poland, Argentina, a bunch of different like countries. Poland, it starts out like Poland, Czechoslovakia, and then it gets into like Argentina, Belize, the Hanging Gardens, Gardens of Babylon. Babylon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of the other things that Eddie Izzard points out about this film is that in the actual Great Escape, pretty much everyone involved was British or Canadian. Including the guy who wrote the book and was the consultant on the film. Who was Canadian. There are zero Canadians in this movie. There as are. As far as I remember. Because no one cares. And two of the only people who survived the escape attempt are the two Americans, James Garner and Steve McQueen. Yeah. Who, there were no Americans involved in this escape attempt. Well, they helped with it, but what happened was they got transferred to a different prison before the actual escape happened. Yeah, but there were no, like, lone wolf, I play by my own rules cowboys, like Um, Steve McQueen. Truth. (laughs) Yeah. Steve McQueen was not actually there. Yep. As Donald Pleasance pointed out to John Sturgis while they were making the movie. No one talks that way to a Nazi officer with a gun. Steve fucking McQueen talks that way to a Nazi officer with a gun. Because Steve McQueen was a fighter pilot, I think, in World War II. Steve McQueen does what he wants. Yeah. I think is what this boils down to. Yeah. For sure. The motorcycle chases in this movie, because Steve McQueen was like, hey, I like motorcycles. I'm gonna get chased on a motorcycle. By myself. He actually played all of the Nazis chasing him on motorcycles as well. Sure. The only motorcycle scene he was not in is actually the super famous high jump that he had to do because the people making the movie were concerned that it would actually hurt Steve McQueen. And you don't want to hurt Steve McQueen. He has a pretty face. He does. You don't want to ruin it. He really does. He really... As much as Steve McQueen is obviously such a ridiculous diva, he, you know... I get it. I get why people gave in. He's very charismatic and has a very strong on-screen presence that really... Like, he makes this movie. I was going to use other filthier words, but sure. Charismatic and on-screen presence are good, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was going to quote Jack Donaghy and say that it was intensely erotic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. This movie definitely does have a lot of presence in pop culture. It has a pop culture footprint, that is for sure. Yeah. And the, the theme song is really well known, too, because it's very jaunty and catchy, and it has been in my head for, like, an entire 24 hours now. One of the other things I found sort of odd about this movie, and I don't know if it's, like, the age of it or McQueen's insistence on being ridiculous or what it is, but for a movie that is building to a point where 50 people are shot in a field for trying to escape from a Nazi POW camp... It has a lot of comedy in it and like very jaunty music. And there's also a number of moments of just like crazy mood whiplash. Yeah, I definitely noticed that. The death of Ives, who's like the Scottish pilot who gets himself killed after one of the tunnels is discovered, is to some extent kind of a turning point for the movie, right? It goes from being something of a caper to being, like, a darker war movie. So originally there was going to be an intermission after he died. That would have made a certain amount of sense. But even after that, there's these very somber moments. And even at the very end of the film, right, it cuts from Roger and Mac in the field being gunned down by German soldiers to... Going back to camp and you have the camp commandant being arrested for allowing this escape and pretty obviously going to be, like... Terminated? Yeah. In a permanent way? Yeah. Tortured at the very least. Yeah. And, you know, knowing that and saying that. And then you have McQueen just, like, fucking sauntering back into the camp and he gets his baseball glove and goes back into the cell and starts, like, throwing the baseball against the wall like he's been doing for the whole movie. And the jaunty music kicks in again, and it's like, 50 people just died, you guys. So something I really like about this movie that ties into some of those jaunting key changes, which I'm not trying to justify, I agree that it could be a, could have been done more smoothly, I like the fact that there is that theme of the indomitable spirit, and the kind of love of freedom because I it, when I think of this movie I think of it as almost like a myth like it's like an American myth about World War II and the role we played in it right it definitely is right especially because again no actual Americans involved in this right so it's clearly I think supposed to have end on that uplifting note 
in a way to remind you that we do win the war and that ultimately, you know, all of this was not for nothing because we were successful because we kept going. That's true. And I mean, you have that element of sort of British, like, stiff upper lipness to it, too, which, like, all of the British characters in this movie are just very much, they have the keep calm and carry on vibe happening. <laughs> well, and they have a really, I think that's part of what they're trying to capture with the amount of humor in it, too. That sort of British sense of wry, dry humor in the face of ridiculous crazy. Definitely. And... I mean, this is, I think this is a movie that is very much a film of its time, right? It's that sort of 1960s moment where World War II is sort of far enough away that people are making movies about it and thinking about it, but there's still kind of all of this, and I mean, obviously there's still in American culture today a ton of mythology surrounding World War II, and it's become this sort of like almost I think you're right like mythic kind of event in American history even though obviously there's still people alive who were like involved in it but there's a lot of kind of different sort of myths and stereotypes that were very prominent in kind of the early 60s that appear in this film so there's you know Americans and sort of McQueen in particular, but Garner as well as kind of like the the cavalry heroes, right? Like again from the Eddie Izzard bit, it's like the Americans always like ride in at the end as like they're the cavalry charge and they come in and they save everyone. Meanwhile, the British have been dealing with this shit for like several years at that point. And I think still are because as we talked about in the Doctor Who episodes, there's still some very relevant trauma, I think, in British culture. I mean, there is in British culture, in French culture, in Russian culture, dear God, like a totally insane number of soldiers and civilians died in Russia in World War II, just because there's, you know, there's a really big difference between a war that happens on your home soil, in your towns, like in your cities, than a war that happens across an ocean, which, like, there was one attack on the U.S. in World War II, and it was Pearl Harbor, it, which was awful, obviously, but... But isolated. It was isolated, and it was confined to a military base, and it wasn't, like, soldiers coming in and killing civilians and taking your homes and, you know... Occupation. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't the same thing. It wasn't the same kind of collective trauma. So going along with that, there's also in this film, I think one of the things that comes up toward the end with James Coburn's character, who, sidebar, is supposed to be Australian. Hilarious. We're just going to leave that alone, because he's obviously American. <laughs> he does not it's even try. It's the 60s. No one cares. He doesn't even try. But he ends up in France at the end, and has the scene in the cafe where the two guys call him over to take a phone call right before a car drives by and like mows down the German officers who are sitting in the cafe. And it turns out that the people in that car and these guys working in the cafe and everything are members of the French resistance. And this ties in to a sort of French national myth that is still fairly prominent and was very prominent sort of starting in the 50s and 60s post-World War II of the idea of the French resistance as this pervasive underground organization that like everyone was actually involved in and everyone was actually resisting the Nazis, which was far from accurate given how many French people collaborated with the Nazis. Vichy. Yeah, I mean the whole Vichy regime, but even just like on, you know, an individual level, like people were collaborating with the Nazis, which- Yeah, because otherwise, the Holocaust would not have happened. I well in the context of France. Yeah, that's true. Like and, and there were also know. right, like the French people were, were handing over their Jews. Like Italians were not so much. They Italians actually managed to avoid handing over a lot of Jews, and so did other countries. And French people were like, Nope, we're good, we're gonna do it. Which, you know, I mean, when you look at how France made it through the war versus how Russia made it through the war, because Russia, you know, decided to fight against the Nazis, like, you can sort of understand the collaborationist mindset, but that's another thing that comes up in this film, right, is that the the French were, in fact, and there was a French resistance, and it did exist, and, you know, they did resist the Nazis, but it was not 
this kind of thing where everyone was part of it. Yeah, the entire... Right, right. It, it kind of gives you that impression that you could just walk into Paris and sit in a cafe and there's a really good chance that it's run by the French resistance. It's not actually real. It's not so much what was happening. Nope. So that was interesting. Um, And then it's also... So this film, and again, I have my own sort of filters through which I view movies about the Second World War, but I do wonder if this movie were made today, if it would be possible to have a film that is about a group of prisoners in a Nazi-run camp in occupied Poland and not have anyone at any point make any reference to the Holocaust. Right. And again, this may just be me coming from my own place of, like, I think about the Holocaust basically every day, which is unfortunate and I don't necessarily recommend it to anyone as like a lifestyle but it's what my job is and it's what I do and there are while I was actually writing this I was trying to think of like recent World War II movies that I'd seen and I saw a couple years ago Fury or whenever Fury came out I guess it was last year um the Brad Pitt fights people in a tank movie and which is set in Germany in the final days of the war and I couldn't actually remember if they talk about the Holocaust at all like they might sort of vaguely reference it but I don't know if it really comes up so possibly it's just that you know there's multiple there's two different genres of movies there's holocaust movies and there's world war ii movies and sometimes they intersect and sometimes they don't but I do wonder if there would be more pressure for that to be included especially since you have a character like Charles Bronson's character Danny who is stated to have to be Polish and to have fled Warsaw like when it I kind of wonder if maybe that would have come up. I think it makes sense that it didn't in that the people that we're spending the movie with mm-hmm. are people who sound like they basically got captured right after crashing into something. That's true. So they maybe don't actually, and they're obviously being kept in an information blackout, so they maybe don't actually know anything. So that was the reason it never bothered me that much that it didn't come up, because in my mind it made sense. Along similar lines, and again, an interesting question as to whether or not you could actually get away with this in a contemporary environment, there are no women anywhere. I mean, to be fair, movie. I don't think there were really many women in POW camps. Right, in the right, which is what war. I'm saying that like it's something that makes sense when you think about the context of it, but again, like could you make this movie now because of how filled with white dudes? I feel like you'd have to add in like, Christian a, white dudes. A girl from the local village who came and like smuggled them information or something. something. Right, exactly. And probably like banged Steve McQueen, but you know Can you blame her? No. She, the hypothetical We've person. We've been over this. I I can't blame any hypothetical person who would want to bang Steve McQueen. Or any real person for that matter. Like I get it. <laughs> totally get it. Yeah. The man is gorgeous. I also I I do like that everyone else has these like impeccably again, their tailor is a fucking magician like everyone else has these like impeccably made like civilian suits and hats and clothes and stuff and mcqueen's just like nah i'm gonna wear my sweatshirt and my khakis like i got this you guys that's how i roll he doesn't have his leather jacket though which is sad he loses it at some point it is sad he keeps his bit in his glove though or his glove in his ball rather yeah that's true i do really love one of my favorite hidden Great Escape references is actually in the questionably good but definitely fun to watch Charlie's Angels reboot from the 2000s. Oh man, it's been a long time since I thought about that film. Bill Murray, when he is in, like, being held in captivity by Sam Rockwell's character, definitely throws a ball against the wall for a little while. And pretty much any time that happens when someone's in prison, it's very clearly a Steve McQueen great escape reference because that's like one of the images that i think sticks the most with people about this movie is that constant like banging sound as he just refuses to quietly sit there and of course it's so american right because it's baseball yeah which is like not a thing in germany (laughs) nope or anywhere else really well japan and cuba that's true but in the 40s (laughs) japan and cuba Probably in Cuba, but that's a story for another day. Um, But yeah, so definitely 
indomitable American cavalierism yeah. is a big part of the movie. Um, I have some favorite one-liners from this movie. Let's do you have a do favorite it. quote? Oh, man. Or moment that you found particularly funny. Like, if we're just going to focus kind of on the comedic side. Because we've talked a lot about the more serious side to it. But, like this you mentioned... This is what happens when you hang out with me, you guys. It, it just, you talk about the Holocaust, and it's really terrible. <laughs> um, I think... So I had kind of... I had a favorite unintentionally funny moment, which is... When, during the whole escape sequence, right, you found out shortly before that Bronson's character, Danny, is claustrophobic, and he's been digging these tunnels despite his claustrophobia, which is very impressive, and his his young British friend, Willie, is talking to him and trying to help him through this during the escape and before the escape, which is great, and it's very supportive of him, but I found it hilarious the number of times he said his name in those sentences that like he would say it twice in every sentence he'd be like Danny it's gonna be okay Danny you have to like we're gonna get out Danny and we're gonna escape Danny and we're gonna get home Danny Danny you escaped from Warsaw Danny and I was like stop saying Danny because I can't take you seriously right now as a person (laughs) Um, I mean my probably my favorite comedic moment was at the very beginning when Bronson and Coburn are sort of when Everybody's trying their sort of, like, day one escape attempt. They're just, like, for fun, like, let's see what we can do on the first day here escape attempt. And Bronson and Coburn are pretending to be Russian. And Bronson, Coburn asks Bronson, like, do you speak Russian? And Bronson says, well, I only know one sentence. And Coburn asks, what is that? What what do you know how to say? And Bronson says, yeah, was new blue. And I took Russian in college. I don't really speak it very well, but I did take it. And so I started laughing. And I was watching this movie with my husband. And he was like, okay, what does that mean? And I was like, just just wait for it. It's fine. And then Coburn's like, what does that mean? And he's like, it means I love you. And he's like, how is that going to be useful? And I was like, well, I wasn't going to say it. So I enjoyed that just because I was like slightly ahead of the curve on the joke. Because I actually knew what it meant. Well, even as someone who didn't know the joke. It was something I thoroughly enjoyed and is one of my favorite. I think my personal favorite comedic moment is the whole 4th of July. Like, just the whole 4th of July thing. Right up until the tragic death of our poor Scottish friend Ives. It's true. That's very sad. Total whiplash. But I think definitely from its humble beginnings in distilling alcohol. The distilling alcohol part might be the best part, though, where they're all just sitting around and they try the homemade moonshine and they're like, wow. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, exactly. It's so fun. That was an improvised scene from what I recall. That's delightful. Pretty great. Just, I, I, I love as we've talked about Steve McQueen, I love the mental picture of Steve McQueen trying to find the most unique attention-grabbing way of saying wow out of those three dudes. Steve McQueen is such a diva. Right. So, like, I love that that scene (laughs) happened and that he clearly was just, like, trying really hard to be cool. Uh, I also really enjoy um, that the line where the younger American guy, again, during the 4th of July celebration... Steve McQueen's sidekick, because that guy does not have a... If he does have a name, I don't I don't know what it is. Just the guy who holds Steve McQueen's baseball glove when he's not using it. Which is amazing. Um, He says something that wasn't in the script, which is no taxation without representation. (laughs) And um, the reaction Steve McQueen has to that is actually totally, like, ad-libbed and just genuine where he just looks at him and it just looks at him like what the fuck are you talking about and it's really funny and i'm really glad they kept it in the movie because it adds some colorful flavor to a very fun scene and like you said it's a really emotion i think that's what makes it so much more heartbreaking right when the tunnel gets discovered and then ives loses hope and kind of commits suicide. I mean, like, he doesn't literally he commit suicide. He definitely commits suicide, though. Like, he he walks over to the spot in the fence knowing he's about to get mowed down. Right, exactly. So, like, he doesn't, like, hang himself, but he basically commits yeah. suicide. Suicide by soldier. Which is so sad. It is so sad. I love Ives. He's, he's such a, a sweet, 
He's an like, adorable Scottish man. Yeah. He's like... He's How like, can you not love an adorable Scottish man? He's like Simon Pegg in the Star Trek movies. So Simon Pegg is actually not Scottish. I know. That's why I said in the Star Trek movies, because I know he's not actually Scottish. But it's like a similar thing, right? Of like, Scotsman underdog. It's true. I mean, I feel like... Like, that's sort of the Scotsman archetype in movies. Like, when is a Scotsman not been an underdog in a movie? That's why I love them so much. If you can think of an example of that, let me know on Twitter, because I really can't think of one. <laughs> yep. When has a Scotsman, Scotsman. been an underdog? Or an <laughs> not been an underdog. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun, though. I think that's part mm-hmm. of what makes it a good... I mean, I do think I do think Ives' death is really sad. It's an interesting moment to me, partially, I mean, partially just because I think it's very well done, and, you know, the way that it's structured is this sort of very classic structure of, like, there's this happy party going on, and everyone's doing really well, and then, you know, it's the, the one, Werner, I think, the, the yeah. friendly German soldier, notices something that he maybe shouldn't, and then they figure it out, and then it sort of escalates into the tragedy of... Ives' death, but it's also interesting to me, right, that it's, his death is the sort of turning point for Steve McQueen's character's arc in a way that is most associated with fridging. Fridging is a trope that's used a lot in TV and movies and other sort of popular culture, and it's basically when there's a character who sort of, in many ways, exists just to die so that the main character can have some sort of emotional reaction or turning point from it. And it's called fridging because of a somewhat infamous example. And I think it's a Green Lantern comic Comic, where the Green Lantern comes home and his girlfriend has been murdered and shoved in his fridge by like his arch nemesis. And it's tends to happen to female love interests of male heroes, which is why I appreciated in this film that it was another dude who was fridged like for so that Steve McQueen's character could have some growth and decide you know that he would in fact go along with Roger's plan to escape on his own scope out the surrounding countryside and then get himself recaptured so he could tell them what everything looked like and so he could explain the lay of the land well and again in typical Steve McQueen diva fashion um, they actually had to hire a final screenwriter. There were several screenwriters for this story, and there were several versions of the script that actually wasn't even finalized while they were filming. Um, so this person that they brought it's like in so many modern blockbusters in that way, but we'll it just turned out really over the well. Plot holes in post, you guys, and it'll be fine. Which is, I think, so funny because when you, I listened to a podcast called. Um, uh, shoot, what's it called? I'm blanking on the name. Is it right How now. Did This Get Made? How Did This Get Made, thank you. You're um, So, on How Did This Get Made, one of the most common reasons a movie will be terrible in retrospect tends to be that they went through so many writers and versions of the script that by the time they get to the end of it, it's such a hot mess that doesn't make sense anymore. And it's just, we'll cobble it together in post. Why does this random Yoda-like figure give Finn Luke Skywalker's lightsaber? Because who the fuck cares? That's Exa- why. Right. Well... I, you know what my personal example. feelings about... I love The Force Awakens, and we I stand by it. Anyway, <laughs> so Steve McQueen's character was originally not supposed to have as big of a role. Surprise. So his whole thing was that he wanted to still maintain, as you say, he always plays Steve McQueen in every movie he's in, so he wanted to maintain his cool, aloof, uh, kind of rebel persona, but also still manage to be heroic. So the whole point of that entire story arc was basically so that there was a legitimate reason for his cool, badass, leather jacket-toting character to decide to be heroic instead of just a douche. And honestly, I kind of feel like that blueprint has survived very much into modern pop culture. Like, that's basically, right... Chris Pratt's character from Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. That's basically Chris Chris Pratt's character, actually, probably in most films. <laughs> <laughs> Post uh, Parks and Recreation. Right? That there's very much kind of, I think, that archetype, which probably, I don't know, very well might date back to Steve McQueen. Probably also influenced a bit by, like, Humphrey Bogart, who's, you know, kind of that, he has that sort of, like, you know, devil-may-care lone wolf surface but with the heart of gold under it right vibe going on but that 
that's a very prominent kind of archetype in like modern cinema that you have somebody who's like a, a particular like a male character probably who's the hero and who's you know kind of a rebel and a badass and he's too cool for school and then you know eventually something happens to him that does not make him any less cool, but does make his actions a little more heartfelt. Right, exactly. So he's like a bad boy and like a good guy, like combined into one package. And, you know, probably nobody's going to do it better than McQueen. I don't think so. I, I think probably because he's one of the best, um, or one of the first probably, if not literally the first, definitely up there in terms of cinema history. And also just because of his screen-melting charisma. Yes, Yes. I feel like what we're learning from this podcast is that we're both really into Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen. He's so fun. <laughs> He's great. Oh, man. I um, This is somewhat of a non sequitur, but yesterday I saw Star Trek, uh, whatever this new movie is called. Beyond. I don't even want to talk about the title of it. It's okay. Fine. Cool. So um, part of the reason... Like, I- are they using Trek as a verb, though? Like, what is happening? I don't understand. It's I think it actually might be. That actually would make sense with the plot of the story. Yeah, anyway, so um, I, I'm i not trying to defend the title. I'm just saying that I could see how someone would come to that logical conclusion. I just conclusion. don't want to have a conversation about the grammar of the title of like the new Star Trek franchise. <laughs> so there's a scene um, where, oh god, I always mess this up, Chris Pine. Not um, Chris Pratt, not Chris Evans, not Chris Hemsworth. Chris Pine. Pine. There's too many Chris's, as I'm sure has been documented in many other places beyond oh, the so podcast. many. But anyway, um, there's a scene where he is heroically, but in a cool way, because he's Captain Kirk, distracting everyone on a motorcycle while, like, the other thing that's supposed to be important is happening. And the entire time, all I could think of was, like, this is such a Steve McQueen I mean, I feel like Captain Kirk, right, is such, like, he totally falls into that McQueen archetype that, like, I'm so cool, but also I'm, you know, part of the Federation, so I'm idealistic, and I'm driven by my ideals, and I have a good heart, and I care for my men, but also, look how cool I am. Also, I bang all of the green ladies. All of of the green ladies, the blue ladies. If you have a vagina, there's a really good chance. And maybe not. Maybe even if you don't. I feel like there's a... Like, at least a 10% chance that Captain Kirk wants to bone you. It's the it's the future, Kate. They don't have the same sort of sexual hang-ups about, like, which gender are you attracted to in the future. Or... Or which species race. are yeah, you attracted to? Yeah, I was gonna say, let's, like, expand this out. Which species. <laughs> but yeah, you anyway. you have, like, a vaguely pleasing shape, like... <laughs> Are you a sentient being? <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. Captain Kirk, I think, very much has the same sort of a vibe going. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, I wonder if that's, you know, I think probably Star Trek was too contemporary to this, but I do think that it definitely informs Chris Pine's performance. That's sort of Steve McQueen. Oh, Chris Pine, yeah, definitely has, like, the... I mean, I feel, again, I feel like it's just so prevalent in a lot of, like, sort of big-budget action movies these days. Like, it's just such a kind of, like, prevalent character archetype for some of these male heroes. Yeah. And these male-dominated stories, too. Yeah. Yeah. Although, at least, you know, they throw the odd lady into into those. I actually really did like what they did with, um, I'm blanking on her name, but there's an alien character who's a woman in this new Star Trek movie that I think they actually did a really good job of making her a prevalent character who doesn't have to bone anyone. Interesting. Which is always a good time. And, like, she doesn't even have to show her boobs once. Not once. Not even once. There's no changing scene. Not even one. Well, I kind of feel like we've gotten on topic. Yeah, which probably means maybe we should we should probably start wrapping this up. So, <laughs> any any final thoughts or things that you wanted to talk about? I have one stupid fun fact I want to share. All right, share your fun fact. Mostly because I find it as we've again discussed multiple times, given Steve McQueen's enormous ego, that apparently part of what every single person, including Steve McQueen and James Garner and all the big ticket people on the movie, would have to do while they were on set and not doing anything was to make the barbed wire for the set. So the barbed wire in all of the scenes are actually just pieces of string with like 
um, rubber tied on them. Okay. So if you were just sitting around not doing anything, you just sat there. You had to sit there you and tied like, rubber. On yeah. The so I kind of like that mental picture of Steve McQueen just like sitting there with James Garner being a little bitch, but also tying this little rubber I, knots. I picture it very much in the vein of like the brief moment in the middle of the movie where he actually helps like collect wood to shore up the tunnel. And, and he's like, ugh, fine. He's just like super pissy about it and then he lets one of the other characters like jump onto the bed that he just pulled all of the slats out of and like collapsed through it. So apparently that's actually a real thing that happened like oh, yeah. in the book. Apparently, the guy who was the like the equivalent in real life to Richard Attenborough's Big X character, yes, um, wanted to set a good example for everyone and donate the wood slabs from his mattress yeah. and replace them with this string apparatus <laughs> to again come up with wood to shore up the tunnel. And he talked his bunkmate into doing it as well. But when his bunkmate got in the bed, he just fell right on top of this dude. I so did, apparently that actually did happen. I read a statistic somewhere that, like, before they started digging the tunnel, each bed had, like, 25 slats in it. And by the time they were done, each bed had, like, eight slats in it. <laughs> like, they figured out the engineering of, like, how many slats can you remove without destroying the bed? No, I mean, I think that's something that we talked a little bit about the kind of meticulous planning that went into this, but it's really impressive, and it's based on, like, all of the real planning that happened. Like, they were building, like, you know, pumping apparatuses to keep fresh air flowing, and they were, you know, making a structurally sound tunnel, and they were doing all this stuff and disposing of the dirt with, like, the fake gardens and everything. That Like, I was also watching, and I was like, that's just, like, sand and gravel. I don't think you're gonna grow anything in there, buddy. Like... <laughs> I feel like at some point, like, the German guards have to realize that this nothing is, is not good ground for us. Nothing this. is growing in that soil. <laughs> but it is really impressive, and I think one of the things that the film does a really good job of is taking the time to really kind of lay the groundwork for that for the first two hours of the movie, where you see them planning, and you see them coming up with these solutions, and you see them executing everything. And, and it makes you want to root for them, because yeah. you see how steadfast they are and how much ingenuity is going into it i also as if you weren't yeah. gonna root for the people who are going up against the nazis either like just <laughs> that's true but like there. they could still be little shits is what i'm saying they could but um, again i feel like the nazis are like you know the, the quintessential bad guy well because you can do it like you can be quentin tarantino and you can make inglorious bastards and have your heroes machine gunning a dead person in the face but like it's hitler so you're like Nah. Yeah, that seems logical. That seems like something that you would want to do to Hitler. <laughs> and I think that's part of why it's so mythological, World War II. Because yeah. it's so easy. Everyone hates Nazis, except neo-Nazis. Like, like yeah. that's like an actual Nazi. It's like a universally disliked group of people. Yeah. You are never going to get very far defending Nazis. No, I mean, it's one of the things I think that World War II, particularly in the popular imagination, because in actuality, obviously, there's a number of gray areas. But Of course, yeah. But in the popular imagination, right, it takes on this sort of dimension of, like, good versus evil, black versus white, like, the allies versus the axis. And you have, you know, Hitler is, like, basically a cartoon villain in popular culture at this point. The mustache really helps. Yeah. It's a little ridiculous. Based on Charlie Chaplin's mustache. I didn't say Charlie Chaplin's mustache was cool. I'm just saying they're both ridiculous. <laughs> it's true. But I think they... Kate's hot takes on mustaches that were cool. Mustaches like of the ago. 1930s. <laughs> with Kate Aram. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I have a lot of really relevant hot takes. But yeah, I think that's it. I think the only other thing that I think is cool to think about, um, along the lines of the realism upholding... The otherwise, as you said, difficult to really suspend your disbelief levels of crazy that happens in this movie yeah. are the fact that almost all the actors actually were in one form or another, either soldiers in World War II or soldiers in the Korean War. Like almost everybody making this movie had real combat experience and or was a prisoner of war themselves. Which, that's rough, man. I don't think I would want to... I think if somebody offered me that movie, I'd be like, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Not totally sure that I want to relive this, but but thanks for thinking of me. So it's interesting, right? It means that this, this story, again, kind of pointing to the mythological levels that the story reaches. Like, I think 
the people it's interesting that the people in it were on that side right because i think it's them trying to like you could probably argue that they're trying to reinforce what they did and make it a heroic story that's true i mean it's it's the sort of thing where in the popular imagining something that when you were living through it was probably just a horror show becomes this thing that's a symbol of something greater than yourself yeah it's exciting it is exciting and you know it makes you really effective at stealing stuff if you're james garner he actually did that that was actually his job at in the korean war when he was a pow was scrounging shit and Steve McQueen's job was riding a motorcycle. It probably, like, let's be real, it probably was in some capacity. He found a way. Oh, he definitely found a way. <laughs> Could you imagine being Steve McQueen's commanding officer? He must have been such a little bitch. Maybe, maybe it was only when he became a famous movie star. Let's hope. I think we can all hope that yeah. for the sanity of his commanding officer, who didn't have to, hopefully didn't have to go through what poor John Sturgis did. <laughs> Seriously. But yeah, any other closing thoughts? Because those are mine. I don't think so. I enjoyed this film. Overall, would you recommend it to another human? I would. I would recommend it to another human. Cool. Especially a human who is of any persuasion that finds men attractive. Woo! Or not. Like, let's be real. I kind of feel like a lot of straight men would still be attracted to Steve McQueen. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. On a motorcycle. Trying to jump that fence. Like Jack Donaghy. But it's too high. <laughs> Get a leather jacket. <laughs> this is a reference, by the way, if you want to know what we're talking about. No, to season. It's season seven, yeah? Season of seven of 30, 30 Rock. Rock. There you go. Jack Donaghy for president. Thanks for listening to The Friendship. I'm Alex, and you can find me on Twitter at AlexTheParroted. I'm Kate, and you can find me on Twitter at HelloKate08. You can also subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. It'd be really cool if you did. We'd be really excited to know that the podcast goes out into the world and arrives at someone else's ears. Um, Our theme music is I Want to Be Your Man by The Lineup, and you can check them out at thelineup.bandcamp.com. Join us next time when we will be discussing what might be the polar opposite of this film about a bunch of men in World War II, the CW's telenovela parody slash delightful drama slash amazing comedy, Jane the Virgin. We hope that you keep tuning in.